Here we are again, April the 26th this time, lecture discussion number 195 on the book of Romans. And i got to begin with the uh, cliffside disclaimer here. Apparently, uh, last uh, Sunday, lecture number 194 did not contain pages 13 and 14. I was informed of that after, uh, after I concluded. And what I mean by that is that pages 13 and 14 didn't fit onto the recording. Uh, which means I need to repeat them at some point today because they are applicable to what we're doing today. So I have to do uh, some of Lecture 195 for the sake of the uh, vast Internet audience. So if you experience the odd feeling that you've heard all of this before, do not question your sanity. Actually, strike that. Go ahead and question your sanity. I have a... I've personally found the process to be particularly helpful. Anyway, at some time in this lecture, two pages from last Sunday will be inserted into today's discussion in no specific order with no discernible context or relationship to the current subjects. In other words, exactly like every other Sunday that I do. So uh, you won't uh, hear it beautiful downtown cliffside, which, as you know, is uh, we're not on the side of a cliff and we're not downtown could say we're beautiful. Beautiful is a relative term, so we can defend that cogently, can't we? Uh, we can mount a defense for that inclusion. But anyway, enough of that. Perhaps you remember last week I asked Bill the Fast to recount a common experience shared by those who know well the characteristics of sheep. I wanted him to put it on the, uh, get it into the internet audience and and it's something that is valuable being that God refers to himself as the great shepherd and to those who hear his voice, he calls us sheep. And note the hearing of the voice is a rapture event. Those who hear my voice, he, when he yells out his voice, those that are his own respond. Anyway, many of you have noticed that being called a sheep is not complimentary. To say the least, it's not praiseworthy. Uh, as Bill pointed out, sheep have heavy masses of mucus in their faces. They have dingleberries at the other end. You can use your imagination what that means. And they're infested underneath their coats uh, with maggots. And they're constantly falling into thickets. Even after being rescued, the sheep will willfully return to the briars as Bill the Fast had witnessed. And nonetheless, the great shepherd, Jesus Christ, lays down his life for the mucus, dingle-buried, infested with maggot sheep that are us. We're in the Bible. We're the ones with the dingleberries and the maggots. And the great shepherd gives up his life, lays down his life, for his sheep, and he searches for the one that runs into the thorns. And he says so. He weeps for the ones that run into the thorns, and he pursues them. But we need to know uh, what it is that we are and what we are prone to do, what we're predisposed to do. We, again, with our mucus and our maggots and our dingleberries, we can't stop ourselves from jumping off of cliffs into briar thorn patches and thickets. Where we're trapped it is what we do. Every one of us, no exceptions. Look at your neighbors. Imagine them with a mucus-encrusted face. That's not hard for parents of small children. That's how it goes, right? They're the most definitive symbols. Now, this is especially the case that we do this. All of us Christians do this kind of thing, this symbol of running into the thorns in the thickets. It's especially the case with the doctrines of Christ, his absolute Godhead or Godhood and his absolute goodness. Christ is two things, always God. Never is he not God. Never. He's always God. He can't be anything but God. And he is Absolute, pure, good. God is good. And the contemporary Christians incessantly, predictably, flee in panic. Bah, bah. 
when confronted by the weakest of arguments, you cast into their path, usually cast by the atheistic community. Who, uh, And again, with regard to the deity of Christ and the goodness of God, that's where the most problems are in my experience. And I'm going to give you the latest common dated canard, albeit it's repackaged, that's making the rounds on the Internet. And, and I do uh, like to go to these sites that, that hate me. It's valuable to know what they think. And once again, this latest, um, I don't know what to call it, uh, interjection into the discussion or into the discourse is scattering the sheep. And once again, the atheists are, have convinced themselves that they are in possession of a newfound, unassailable, formidable position instead of the simple, childlike standpoint that it is in reality. And not knowing that, they anxiously uh, put it everywhere they can, all the while uh, unaware of its inherent flaws. So I'm going to read it to you today so that uh, you will see uh, what we're up against again. So here it is, and I'm going to quote it. Quote, If your religion is about an omnipotent being who raped a virgin girl, defined as impregnated without consent, and that, that girl was betrothed to someone else so that the omnipotent being could then give birth to himself in order to subsequently torture himself to death so that he could appease himself for something he started in the first place. Then your religion is BS. Close quote. Let me repeat it again for you. I'll shorten it a little bit. Oops, I have to find it. If your religion is about an omnipotent being who raped a virgin girl that was betrothed to somebody else so that the omnipotent being could then give birth to himself in order to subsequently torture himself to death so that he could appease himself for something he started in the first place. As per usual, all the atheists burst into prolonged applause and loud sustained cheering, cheering, whilst uh, the mugit maggot dingleberries, what do they do? They run for the thickets. That's what we do. And they're certain that they've been defeated. Um, and silence is the response. And when you find this thing, it is interesting to me that the Christians don't respond. They're just, or they say something like, oh yeah, that's what they do. God will condemn you, they'll say. Uh, that's all they have. Which I, of course, find very discouraging. That is a expose, if you will. That is a, a revealing of the lack of understanding in the church in our time. And it is the perfect opposite of what should occur. So uh, let me deconstruct this latest offering from the monistic community. And um, by monistic, for those of you who are just joining us, that means that they believe all that we are is a physical device, and upon the, the physical death of the physical device, all that the, is there is nothingness or blackness or cessation of existence as opposed to what the Bible says definitively, that you are a two-part device, if you will. You have a spiritual, non-physical element, and you have a physical machine that the non-physical, immaterial spirit soul controls. And the spirit soul is not subject to a physical process. So that's the difference between the dualists, uh, the substance dualists, and the monistic physicalists. So uh, if that threw you, that's why I did that. Now, Let's start with this offering that has made the rounds again. It begins with what word? Did you hear that word that it begins with? It begins with if. If your religion is about. Well, we could stop reading right there. Christianity is not about anything that followed that word or that sentence. The Bible does not say that God impregnated a young girl without her consent or raped a girl. The Bible does not say that. It does not say, Scripture does not say that God tortured himself to death. 
Scripture does not say that he is the one that started this. It says the opposite. The Bible does not say that he is the author of sin, of evil, or that he is the source of evil. The writer of the aforementioned uh, atheistic uh, um, diatribe, I guess, went on to insist that the Bible is a typical religious uh, pagan rape myth. You'll run across that all the time. Or they'll say, as Bill the Cow mentioned to me before we began to die, they'll say that none of the Bible, anything in the Bible ever happened. There is nothing in it that happened. It's all a myth. But they will call it specifically a typical pagan rape myth that predominates in pagan literature. Now to divert just a little bit, you might be, you might befittingly be asking, how is it the atheistic community has come to conclude that Scripture teaches what I just read you, they say Scripture teaches? They're convinced that that is what Christianity is about. How did they get to that? Where did they come up with that? Who taught them that? Or where did they hear it? Well, as you know, they watch what? Just as you do, they watch the Christian movies. I'll put Christians... Movies in, I'll put all of it, Christian movie in quotes. They read the Christian books. That's where they get it. As an example, uh, for Sunday school, the lovely Lori um, found it quite difficult. She wanted to get books that were somehow reasonably doctrinally sound for first fruits or what do we do, what, what, what do we call that in the church today? We call it Ishtar. That's what we do. And so to find a first fruits children book, children's book that wasn't completely ridiculous, totally wrong, was impossible. They just went through one after another after another. They hand them to me, I'd say no. Hand them to me. Is there any book in this pile that we can take to Cliffside? We found one that was not horrible. No, we found one that was not horrible. At least it portrayed Christ as God. So it it it, it wasn't laborious uh, to locate media material produced by the church that is nonsensical. A- add to that the mountain of uh, of material from the quasi secularists. Can barely say secularists. I have to have more medicine. Um, that is likewise biblically illiterate as well. And, uh, which is foolishly then promoted. So we have a secularist community inside the church that is writing church material and is then absorbed in and celebrated by the church. Uh, it's a wonder that any truth is referenced anywhere by anyone. In fact, I'm going to tell you the fact that there is some truth out there is what? A miracle. It is a supernatural protection of the truth. So there's so much leaven in the bread now. So let's just uh, take my recent favorite example. I'm I'm having a feud with a man that doesn't know that we're feuding, doesn't know me, and would not be interested in knowing me at any any time and anywhere, of course. And uh, uh, but we're feuding, I say. He's written a book, or somebody he's associated with has written a book titled "Killing Jesus," as you know. And I don't like to name Bill O'Reilly because I don't want to bring attention uh, to him. So, that's a joke. You used to laugh at that. Thank you. But his book, Killing Jesus, has sold millions and millions, multiple millions of copies. And the church does what with it? They pass it out. They hand it out. They handed it out at Ishtar. What they call Ishtar instead of First Fruits. It is purported to, to be a. He took a lot of heat uh, from the uh, literalists, the ones that value the Bible. He took a lot of heat, and so he doesn't call it a, a religious book. He calls it a, a historical accounting. 
And it, that is impossible, by the way. The very title, Killing Jesus, is impossible. Uh, that's another lecture. But it is impossible to have a historical accounting that purposely removes the single foundational essential truth. History, by definition, infers truth. When you lie to somebody, and you lie to them knowingly, you know that you are lying, you desire, you def- deny that person, the recipient of your lie, uh, reality. So uh, you, that person now has a false sense of reality. You do that and call it history, inferring that it is truth, and you have done something that is very destructive. If there is no truth, then there is no historical rendering. To knowingly and willfully and intentionally discard the truth of the Godhood of Christ and excuse that act on the basis of calling it a historical account is to destroy the very meaning of the word history. To attempt to dispatch the fundamental purpose of the crucifixion. The crucifixion has a fundamental purpose. The crucifixion, without that fundamental purpose assigned to it, is reduced to meaninglessness. I have to attach the purpose. You take the purpose out of it and call it history, you've destroyed the crucifixion. If it is not God himself on that cross, there is no meaning to the crucifixion at all. So if you say that this person that was on the cross could be killed, then he is not God. Therefore, you've destroyed the purpose of the crucifixion and you've destroyed the truth of it, which means you have nothing historical. So what are the atheists doing? Where did they get their ideas? They just got them. They're just merely and justifiably returning the errors of the church. And it's misguided surrogates back to us. And not a surprise. It's actually a deserved condition. The church has earned this stuff. We have put out so much garbage that they're now throwing it back at us. That's Precisely what we, we should expect, huh? Okay, well, let me go back to it. If your religion is about, well, our religion is not about that. If your religion is about an omnipotent being, well, we will agree that the atheist has now lurched into something that is profoundly true. Let me find where I am now. I I am a a professional after all. It's not going to be as easy as I thought. That is the correct usage. If your religion is about an omnipotent being, it's not about an omnipotent being. It is about the only omnipotent being. Omnipotent says that the person that is omnipotent has all of the power. If that person has all of the power, there's only one omnipotent being. So at least we're now talking about omnipotence, and that's that's really a good uh, place to begin. Our faith is about the omnipotent being. The atheist then concedes the point, unknowingly though, he doesn't know by saying that it is about an omnipotent being that he's now in great deal of logical difficulty. He's in muck now in the sense that his position is unraveling without him being aware of it. Confessing the obvious is what's going to happen next. As soon as you concede omnipotence, that there is an omnipotent being and the religion is about the omnipotent being, then you're confessing something that is going to descend from that. And that confession will evaporate the very premise of everything that I read he believes. One more time. We'll do it one more time. Actually, we're going to probably do it a couple of thousands of times because it's rare that I hear it anywhere anymore. All power, omnipotence, cannot be separated from omniscience, omnipresence, or omnibenevolence. What I mean by that is all power and all knowing and everywhere at the, at the simultaneously and Pure good cannot be separated. If I have omnipotence, then I have to have omniscience. If I have omniscience, I have to be omnibenevolent because I know all things. It's impossible to know all things and be evil. You'll have to figure that logic out on your own. 
And of course, if I'm omnipresent, I'm sorry, if I'm omniscient, I have to be infinite, omnipresent. I have to be everywhere in order to be omniscient. They're interconnected and they are not separable. Omnipotence cannot relinquish absolute knowledge or infinite location or complete pure goodness. Once you have one, you have all. They're all the same in the sense that they all are defining one condition. You cannot separate them and call and make them distinct. Oh, this person has, this being has omnipotence, this being has omniscience. Those are, those are parts, if you will, of one total uh, characteristic. One characteristic that we describe with pieces. And all these, uh, again, characteristics interdependent. It's rare, very rare that I find anyone that knows that. It's really rare. Christian or atheist. And it's really rare that I find an evolutionary atheist that's reasoned it out or figured this out. And so those that do, though, stop calling God omnipotent. Or any of the omnis, if you will. So they exist out there. The point is, is that pure goodness is contradictory with a pagan rape myth. I can't be omnipotent because that makes me omnibenevolent and therefore a pagan myth. Okay, let's just talk about what a pagan rape myth is. I'll get rid of the word Myth, and I'll put what? What is a myth? It's a lie. Well, omnibenevolence is contradictory. Cannot lie. What is rape? It is violence and it is assault. Omnibenevolence, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. Won't do it. What is pagan? It's also a lie. Lie, evil, lie. What is all of that? We'll condense it into one word. Evil. And they understand that. We don't. Very often. A cursory inspection, by the way, if you really wanted to know if the pagan rape lie is in the Bible, all you have to do is study one little tiny biological subject. And what is that subject? We sell a t-shirt with it on it now at our little store that no one really goes to. We're hoping that changes so that we can do what? That's right. Have a much more significant buffet. We're after that. One of the items that uh, Supper Dave has put on there is entitled The Continuity of Germ Cell Plasm. You spend just a little bit of time studying the continuity of germ cell plasm. You get rid of any possibility that the Bible is about a pagan rape myth. A shallow approach to it would end the repetition of this error by the, uh, by the atheists, the monists. And for some, they have. For some, they have learned about this particular aspect of Romans 5. And, but the word hasn't spread. They hold it to themselves. They don't let the other atheists know what they know. When an atheist finds out his position has been destroyed, the last thing he wants to do is tell the other atheists. The longer he can keep them in delusion, the happier every atheist becomes. So we have two levels of atheism out there. We have those that have no understanding of what they're writing at all, and those that do but don't tell each other. God did not torture himself. What did he do? What he did is he exposed, he allowed mankind's hatred for him to be made manifest. That's what he did. He demonstrated. If you will, it's a free, if you want to think of it this way, it's a free will exercise. He proved in the crucifixion, uh, parentheses, if you will, in the Bible. In the, in the context of the crucifixion, he proved that uh, mankind despises his creator. And he despises his creator primarily because his creator has a accountability. We are going to be held accountable to our God. So mankind despises that accountability. So understand why this is so. 
Why is it that God, that mankind hates God and because of his accountability? I know that I have accountability to God. It does not make me hate him in the least. Accountability to my creator, I uh, long ago said, is rightful. He created me. He gave me existence. I have, therefore, a responsibility to him. If he had, if somehow, give me this hypothesis, this thought experiment, if somehow God could have come to me before he gave me existence, that's impossible, right? It's a thought experiment. Somehow God could have come to me before he gave me existence and bartered with me and said, I will give you existence, but I will hold you accountable. What would I have said? Oh, yeah. This gift of existence is amazing. And it's eternal. All that is at stake is my destination, right? Do I seek a destination with my creator or do I seek a destination that rejects him? That is apart from him. That's why I call it a free will exercise. Why would somebody who has been given this unimaginable, we can't even conceive of what existence is, why would we, why would we hate the one that gave it to us? I don't understand it, but that's what man does. And that is what Christ was proving when he allowed man to do what man did at his crucifixion. He was uh, making manifest the hatred that the creator or the creation has for his creator. He's not torturing himself. Predictably, the atheist illustrates the point, the one that wrote that particular statement that I read you. Irrespective of the mocking derision, the writer reveals that he holds for his creator, Jesus Christ nonetheless does what? Reaches out to him. For him. Absolute love and mercy is extended. And now consider that for a moment because God is revealing his character, isn't he? Why? Who of us would do it? If somebody passionately hates you and devotes the overwhelming majority of his energy into hating you, uh, wishing at every moment that he could somehow destroy you, and you, on the other hand, have given him the greatest gift anyone could give anybody, and yet all you get in return is this uh, extraordinary level of, of animus, who would extend love to that person among us? I tell you, none of us would. That is the love your neighbor, right? None of us do it. None of us love those who seek to kill us. But God does. So the atheist that wrote that paper, or that wrote those, that paragraph, demonstrated that exact principle in it and had no idea he was doing so. And though we agree that there has to be a cost for sin, what he causes, what he called an appeasement to himself. There has to be a cost for sin and a solution to sin, a solution to death. A distinct truth of Scripture is that God provides himself. He's the one that pays the cost. He doesn't ask us to pay it. Everyone agrees that there must be a cost. He does, he himself provides himself. That, by the way, is Jehovah Jireh Salom, right? God provides peace. That is where we get the word Jerusalem from. God provides himself for peace. Uh, the question for the atheists that write these things is all about the whys. Why is sin and death ubiquitous on earth, universal on earth? Why is blood atonement necessary? We are called a religion of blood. That is absolutely true. The life is in the blood. Why does God say the life is in the blood? God cannot be the source of sin. That's logical with five, thirty seconds of any kind of thought. God cannot be the source of sin. He has absolute goodness, and absolute goodness cannot abide any evil at all. So then the, the question is, why is there sin? Who then chose sin? Who then chooses sin? Why was sin chosen? Chosen? I'm sorry. Why is it chosen? Why is, why is will a component of existence? 
It is good that you have a will. It is necessary that you have a will in order for you to exist. When you can logically understand why that is, you will not have any more problems with these kinds of paragraphs on the Internet. You may still have the mucus and the dingleberries, and you may still have the maggots, but you won't run for the blackberry briars this time. Just solve that. Why is will a component of existence? Correctly answer those and others, and then the atheist will know what scriptures, and the atheist will know what scriptures truly say, but then they will cease to be atheists if they do, or at least they will drop the pretense. I doubt that will happen either. Okay. Next, my mail uh, from the vast Internet audience. That is a joke, by the way. Uh, I received mail saying, I don't think your audience is that vast. And I go, well, you're right. Vast is a relative term. I once again can defend a relative term. It is extraordinarily much larger than I could have ever imagined, um, as you, you know, you guys that keep track of all the, all the downloads. But my mail has been filling up uh, from the Internet with respect to the sign of the taken bride, which you may want to call the rapture. I'm trying to get you to call it the sign of the taken bride, or the taking, if you will. So let me put that on the board here. Everyone wants to know about the sign of the taken, of the taken, or the taking. So it's either, if you wish to call it either one, the sign of the taken bride, or the sign of the taking of the bride, either would be appropriate. And there's, it's a, a it's a subject that generates a lot of. Opinion and um, and it shows up in my mail. <coughs> All of that is a good thing, as this subject, in my opinion, is another one of these subjects that the mucus maggot dingleberries don't do very well at. Um, it's consistently being presented in a very elementary manner when it is anything but. Uh, within this subject. Jennifer from Arizona has asked about 2 Thessalonians 2.11. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, hi, Jennifer. I just uh, want to let you know that I'm too lazy to write you back, so I included you into the lecture. As I type really slow, and it's an arduous experience, and I just go, wow. And then I also got something from Louise, again from Pennsylvania, as, uh, as brilliantly written as she always does. And she has been wondering about the possible connecting uh, of the signs of the crucifixion and the signs of the taking of the bride. Essentially, she's asking, could there be a repetition of that which happened at the crucifixion and that which will happen at the sign of the taking of the bride? To get more specific, and we'll read it. (coughs) Uh, Excuse me. Could there be darkness? Could there be a loud voice? Could there be an earthquake and split rocks? Could there be a rent veil or some equivalent at the taking of the bride? Uh, could there be open graves? Could there be many resurrected that go into the city of Jerusalem? Because that's what's happened, right? And I know, Louise, that's not exactly how you asked the question, but I changed it a little bit because I don't want to type this. Never mind. And, of course, I got James from Texas. He was the catalyst for this subject a while back. The reason that we're here more than anything, it, it fit into the, uh, into the direction I was going. I just put it out of order a little bit. And James has been mulling over the specifics of the manifestations of the rapture, pretty much the same thing that uh, Louise, but taking a different uh, focus. He's asking primarily, who will notice the sign? What will be the evidence that the taking of the bride has occurred. Now, if you've seen all the movies, I want you uh, to consider that uh, that may not be true. At least be suspicious. What will, be, will the taking of the bride be an event that the entire world will recognize and perceive, if you will? Because it dims your choices, right? Popular Christian uh, media uh, has given us a preconceived thought 
that the taking of the bride is an unmistakable, verified, overt act of God that is, is noticed by the entire world. Is that true? Or is that more mucus, maggots, and dingleberries? Because why would they do that? Makes for a good story, that's why. Is it true? Why would they put something that they know might not be true into the church? I have asked myself that lots of times. Would I put something forward that I know is, is questionable without identifying it as questionable for the purpose of making money? No, I wouldn't do it. How come? I read this job description. I know who's going to stand there when I stand there, and I don't want the experience of saying, I did it for the money. That's a bad plan, in my view. If you really believe it will happen, it should affect your behavior. Clearly, I am not doing it for the money. You you can see how I dress. Um, Yes, sir. That's right. There's the beating warning, and and I'm very much aware of the beating warning. Um, So I will have lots of things for which I get a beating. This will not be one of them. I've learned, I probably told you this many times, uh, never ask God for money. Because the first thing he will do is teach you how it works. The adage is is that if God loves you, he will not let you have any money. And that's evidence that God really loves me. (laughs) I'm probably the most loved of all of you. (laughs) Anyway, uh, that's not true, as you know. But that again, that's your choices. Popular Christian preconceived thought. That the taking of the bride is known by everyone. The whole world knows it. No one misses it. It's, it's unmistakable. It's overt. Um, or will it be, as Louise is proposing, shrouded in darkness, accompanied by earthquakes, with only Jerusalem, the holy city, witnessing anything uh, of extraordinary, uh, miraculous nature and only Jerusalem being availed of the evidences. So boiled down, it is this. Who sees the taking of the bride or the rapture? Who's going to know about it? Uh, does God intend for the, all of the world to be aware or just a few? Uh, that's the question that we're going to try to solve over the next few weeks. Let's uh, read First <coughs> Matthew 27, 51 through 54, and then we'll go to Second Thessalonians uh, for the, so this is Louise that caused this to happen. Not really. I was actually going to be here. I just wanted to blame her. And this is uh, also Jennifer, who I like blaming. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves, at, notice many bodies were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, Christ's resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion, the Romans, right, and those with him, so the Romans with the centurion, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Know that Son of God is a title. For who? For God. It's one of his titles. It deals with the hypostatic union. You won't know what that means. Just know that Christ is always God, never God, never not God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. And it names them. So that's uh, uh, Matthew 27. Notice those signs. That's what I want you to do. The signs of the crucifixion, Louise wants to know, are those signs going to be replicated at the taking of the bride? Got it? Good. Now, we'll go to 2 Thessalonians 2, which, as you are aware, I'm sure, a very popular passage in the New Testament with respect to this topic. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled. What's he saying to them? 
Let me repeat it. We ask you, don't be soon shaken in mind and troubled. What's he calling them? Yeah, mucus, dingleberries, and maggots, right? Something bothering you. Why are you so soon bothered? You didn't even last a couple of weeks and you're in the thorns. Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. What did they think? They thought the day of Christ had come. What did they think they missed? They thought they missed the gathering together. Anna's not here. Nana was 13. I got a phone call. I would say one in the morning. So when I get calls at one in the morning, I answer them because they're usually bad. And I have this little 13-year-old girl uh, in her room calling me to say, are you still there? And I said, I'm still here. She said, good, because I was afraid I missed the rapture. And we, we had that conversation for years. And we still have that conversation. She's right here in Second Thessalonians 2. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So do you see that yet? Hasn't happened yet. It's not Antiochus Epiphanes. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? No, they don't remember. How come? Mucus, maggots, and dingleberries. They went right into the pit. Didn't they? That's what they did, right? And now you know what is restraining. They know that something is restraining. The obvious question is, do you know? Do I know? Do we know that something is restraining? What is it restraining? There's a restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Now, in some translations, we'll get to that, the word is not he. Or it's lowercase. We'll get to that in the weeks to come. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, firstly, it is readily obvious from the context of those verses that the Thessalonians were beginning to think that tribulation had come. And that they were in it which was in direct conflict with Paul's earlier letter. And he says so, specifically 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, right? Therefore, Paul, this is the Holy Spirit using Paul, utilizing Paul, addresses their concern, their concerns. The day of Christ, the day of the Lord, same thing, would not come until the man of sin is revealed. The son of perdition is worshipped as God. So there is no tribulation, day of Christ, day of the Lord, until the son of perdition is no longer in perdition. And he's revealed. And he has, become, he has, has so much power that the, the world begins to worship him as God. And he says he is God. And the Thessalonians thought that they had missed the gathering together to him. 
They thought they had missed that. The taking of the bride. And this, this error is corrected here in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 12. By the way, who, how did they get this error? They had Paul himself right, not just there telling them, but he wrote them a letter laying it out. And very shortly afterwards, they're completely confused and in turmoil and completely wrong. How did they get like that? What do you think was the anatomy? Somebody had to tell them this. Somebody had to start this concept, right? Why would he do such a thing? But interestingly, the Thessalonians are worried, and that's important, as if it were possible to not know if the rapture occurs. So they're thinking the rapture has happened, and they don't know it. So that leads us to ask, is it possible for the rapture to occur and people not know it? Which I, as you know, find to be worthy of further attention, asking why did they think this? Why did they think this way? Also note that there will be this restraining force. We have to decide what is meant by this restraining I love the word force, as you know. I won't talk about gravitational phenomenon. I won't. Okay, I just did. But there's a restraining force. What is meant by a restraining force? And that restraining force will be removed. And then the man of perdition will come out of perdition. He is called the man of perdition because he is in perdition. He is the son of perdition. And he will be revealed. And the Thessalonians, it says... And now you know what is restraining. So the Thessalonians know what the restraining force is. Do you know what the restraining force is? And why there is a restraining force? And he says, for the mystery of lawlessness, it's a mystery. The mystery of the Antichrist is already at work. How long ago did it get at work? When did the mystery of lawlessness start? If you've been here for those lectures, you know that I can, I believe I can tell you exactly when the mystery of lawlessness began. But the Thessalonians know that the restraining being removed and the revelation of the man of sin are connected. Notice as well, the man of perdition, once unrestrained, will have all kinds of capability. He will have Power, signs, and lying wonders. There's a movement out there called the Signs and Wonders Movement. You need to know that there is such a thing as lying wonders. You also need to know that there is such a thing as uh, simulated wonders. They're not really wonders, but they're simulated. They're simulated because they can take Take your money and enrich themselves. Always pay attention to the bank accounts of the people who profess to be doing wonders. And know that there is also lying wonders. If there's lying wonders, what other kind of wonders has there to be? There has to be truthful wonders. So what does the lying wonders do? What's the purpose of lying wonders? Lying wonders has a purpose. The Antichrist will do lying wonders. That would be amazing. And people will think he's God. Is he God? No. He's lying. Why is he lying? Why is he pretending to be God? How does he prove he's God? What can he do that makes people believe he's God? We'll get into that next week. As you know, one of the aspects of of the Antichrist is his ability to convince people that he can defeat death. And that he can do it in those that worship him. I think one of the aspects of the mark of the beast is the defeat of death. But it's a lie. He can't defeat death. He can just fool you into thinking he's done it. He knows very soon what's going to happen to everybody that worships him. That's his plan. And those who did not receive the love of the truth, who instead worship the son of perdition, God will send them a strong 
delusion. Okay? That has to be solved. And that they should believe the lie. Now, this really isn't difficult because the lie is singular in the text and it is the definitive argument. It is not a lie. If your Bible has a lie, cross it out and put the lie and you will find that the lie is, of course, a person, right? As opposed to the truth. Who is the truth in the context of the story or the passage? That's obviously Christ. So the lie is obviously the man of perdition. So that's a person. The strong delusion is also a name of that person. He is the lie and the strong delusion. So worshiping him as God is what is the context of that. And taking his mark, believing that the lie is God, will result in condemnation. Having pleasure in this unrighteousness. So now we can accurately discern the order, can't we? The restraint must be taken out of the way. It says so. It says it exactly that way. Taken out of the way. So the restraint has to be taken out of the way. Before the strong delusion, before the lie is revealed. But though the restraining is taking, taken away, now, let's talk about, I was asking this with, with, I'll give you a little hint here where we're headed. I was asking this um, to supper Dave earlier. One of the biggest problems I run into uh, is people who will try to answer this question. It's a trick question. I ask them, I don't ask them who is more powerful, um, A or B or A or, or, I ask them this way. I say, who is more powerful? Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit? Now, they will answer that invariably. Jesus Christ is more powerful because it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So they assume there's some kind of uh, order of rank there. There is no order of rank there. But they will say, I will say, if Jesus Christ has ten power, how much power does the Holy Spirit have? They will try to answer that. And that is what do we call that? Yes, respond in unison. Mucus, maggots, and dingleberries. Those are three persons, a triune, all of them completely gone. Taken out of the way is an interesting way of it. Think about that word taken and ask yourself, who does that apply to? Anyway, let me move on. That was a hint. But though the restraining is taken away, there's this wonderful statement down here. And for this reason, um, where is it again? They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. In other words, during the day of Christ, there is an opportunity to be what? Saved. Though the restraining has been taken there are those who might be saved. It's still extended to those who receive the love of the truth. Notice the tense, be saved. Not, uh, it, it isn't past tense. Not might have been saved. So clearly it's possible uh, to be saved. Still extended to those who love the truth. The truth is contrasted with the lie. They're absolute opposites. The truth is the Godhood of Christ. So putting the pieces into their proper places now. The taking of the bride comes before the worshiping of the man of perdition. The taking of the bride, the gathering, is a component of the restraining. When the bride, the light, the salt is removed, all unrighteous deception is now loosed upon the earth. But there are those who might be saved, who will be saved who will love the truth, who will receive the love of the truth. I still have 144,000 uh, ministering. I still have two witnesses. But the restraining that is known by the Thessalonians will be removed. Again, though darkness comes and most have pleasure in the unrighteous deception, some are saved. Who then are these that reject the lie? Who are the not deceived by the strong delusion? 
If you've heard my lectures on the tribulation, there's three purposes of the tribulation. Purpose number one is to break the stubbornness of Israel. So these are your choices here. Who is not deceived? Who gets to see the sign, I guess, is where I'm really going to head with this. Who understands the sign? Is it, uh, is it the people of Israel? Again, I'm breaking the stubbornness of the people of Israel. It's the purpose of the tribulation. They're, they're left alone. There is, however, simultaneously a worldwide revival. I have the ministry of the 144,000 two witnesses to primarily in that. I have the, also the purpose of the tribulation is to end the wickedness of the wicked ones. That is the man of perdition, Satan, and the false prophet. prophet okay? So I'm breaking the stubbornness of Israel. What are they stubborn about? Israel does not believe that God is Jesus Christ. They do not believe that the I am is Jesus Christ, even though he says it hundreds of times. And so, the question is really not that difficult here. Let me, let me uh, get this out of the way. So, uh, the, the taking of the bride is, is matched to these purposes. Which purpose is it matched to? Israel, worldwide salvation, or the ending of the Antichrist? Does the taking of the bride end the Antichrist? No, it starts the Antichrist. Does the taking of the bride cause the worldwide revival? That would imply that it is an act that is completely seen. Or is the purpose of the taking of the bride to break the stubbornness of the nation of Israel towards the truth of who Christ really is? I'm going to submit to you that it is only applicable to Israel and that it energizes the 144,000 and they cause the worldwide revival. Now, why does God resurrect our dissolved bodies? Because that's what he's going to do. We asked that question last week. I didn't get it into the material, so I have to get it in now. Am I doing okay? Okay, i got to hope. Why does God resurrect our dissolved bodies? What is his definition of resurrection? Not your definition, not mine, but his. Is it resurrection if our dissolved bodies are not included? I've said many times, he does not need to resurrect your living soul. Your living soul, your mind, uh, is not a physical entity. It is a non-physical, it is a supernatural component. So it doesn't need resurrecting. Resurrection is a physical process. So the body is the only thing that can be resurrected. So if the body is not resurrected, then a resurrection hasn't Occurred. So why is resurrection part of his plan? And I said last week that we need a physical body. His plan means that he has something for us that we will do physically. We need the physical body. And he knows we need it for what he's doing. So there's a need. He also wants the continuity of our physical bodies. So there's a continuousness. Now there's a change. There's a cleansing. But he need, the continuity of the body matches the continuity of the soul. There is a recognition of the body so that we can recognize each other. Why do we need to recognize each other? It's obvious, isn't it? What is the proof that death has been de- defeated? The whole plan is to end death, ultimately. Actually, it's to glorify God for the person that he is. Resurrected body is physical proof that death has been defeated. If it's recognized, so is continuity of the soul. So obviously there's a physical reality that is coming that is maybe slightly different, but not that much different. I think it's the restored physical reality governed by laws. And God desires that our physical bodies, our mortal bodies, be washed in his blood. Think car wash. He's going to run you through a car wash. Except the water is going to be blood. Your body will be cleaned. First he's going to find it. Then he's going to resurrect it. Then he's going to clean it. And then he's going to reinstall the living soul that is you, that is your person. And then he's going to place it into the physical reality. Next week we're going to find out 
why he emptied those tombs, sent those people into Israel or into Jerusalem. And is he going to do the same thing when he does the rapture? Notice the wiser of the musicians have already come forward. Some musicians have gone the exact wrong direction. But what does that remind you of? Absolutely. Mucus, dingleberries, and maggots. Oh, there he is. Here he comes. Let's rise and be dismissed.